0: And the name of the game is to end physical disability. That's truly the goal of our lab, and I want to work towards that. But why stop there? It may be possible that we can actually beat biology. And the goal is really to go better than biology, to augment biology. But I'm really motivated by the people who wear these systems and the excitement I see on their faces. And my next step is to look to build up a team to
1: try to continue to pursue this. Welcome back to the SOLIDWORKS Born to Design podcast, a collection of inspiring stories about those who create, build, invent, and engineer new ideas into actual new products. And by the way, they all use SOLIDWORKS. I'm your host, Cliff Bendling, and I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of the Born to Design podcast called Biomechatronics, Designing Next Level Robotics for Humans. Today, I'm talking with Matt Carney, who received a PhD in biometrics engineering from MIT, and is a designer and entrepreneur as well. Listen as Matt discusses the technology and exciting advancements in designing next-level robotics. He's dedicated to creating supersonic bionic legs that perform better than anyone could imagine. So let's jump right into his interview. I learned
0: to build robots in industry. I really lucked out and got a job building humanoid robots at a small company called Mecha Robotics. That was a, started by two people who had finished their PhDs at MIT. And that's really where I cut my teeth on really diving deep into CAD, SOLIDWORKS, and learning about mechatronic systems. Like, what are the important electronic components? Like, where are the issues with encoders or signals, uh, thermal issues there? And also, like, I, I did a lot of thermal studies when I worked at this wind power company, Makani Power, where I was in the energy systems group and I was responsible for the heat sinks on the IGBT power switches. So all of these things have combined into being able to apply them towards humanoid robotic systems and lower extremity of actually walking robots.
1: Yeah, let's jump into that. I mean, I, I know little about this and except for the last two couple of days here at uh, 3D Experience World. I've been really educated, and, and it's really exciting. It seems like we're at yeah. maybe an exciting point in prosthetics, because they've been somewhat the same for the, a long time, but now... You mentioned bionics, and I can't help to think, you know, I, I, I'm older here, but, you know, the $6 million man was, like, yep. my favorite show when I was a kid. So, <laughs> you know, many years later, I feel like we're getting to that point. But it was impressive, your presentation yesterday. Thank you. And talk about uh, that, what what you're doing, what's uh, with with uh, new prosthetics. Yeah, I mean, there's some really cool stuff happening. Um, the first powered prosthesis
0: is actually, actually came out in, I think, 2007 is the first paper. So it's actually been out you know, a little over 10 years, but robotics is really advancing, and we've been having incremental improvements across the board that are enabling us to reach this, these new levels. And what I mean by that is it's not just, you know, it's robotic controls, but it's also electronics, power electronics are getting smaller, microprocessors are getting smaller and faster, so we can do more computation real time. Uh, the power electronics is really an issue. Like, we we're, we're actually been getting smaller MOSFETs that allow us to do all these Brushless DC motor commutation controls uh, much more efficiently and in smaller package that so we can actually fit it inside the system. And batteries have been improving, so we can actually make these systems more mobile and really dump a lot of power. The lithium-ion battery packs allow us to dump, you know, tens of amps, 60 amps, for instance, that really allows us to get a lot of torque out of these motors. And the motors themselves have been improving because we've, we've got better magnets and we've got a whole new industry of flying drones, which is really driving... The development of a certain type of motor, an outrunner motor that has a very high torque ratio, torque density, and combining all those things along with simulation tools uh, and CAD tools that allow us to kind of really tightly integrate all of the systems, it allows us to really create a better package. And then that, combined with more advanced control systems, we can we can infer motion. And then the next step is so that so that's a huge a whole bunch of improvements, kind of all across the board there. Uh, I should also throw a heat transfer in there. You know, we just have, you, there's a lot of energy that's dissipated just in the electrics and being able to get that heat out is better and being able to model all of these things allows us to, again, tight, tight integration is really the name of the game here. And now what's really happening that's really about to enter us into the, I don't know, the age of the cyborg maybe is, <laughs> like uh, that. is neural interfacing. Neural interfacing is is starting to really move forward. Then now. what is
1: that? I don't, uh, well, neural. so,
0: so it, it, it's tying the human in the loop of the control of the robot itself. It's kind of like when they invented the mouse. You know, I think IDEO is claimed to have the first mouse with Apple. And they spent a lot of time trying to build this really sophisticated system that was super accurate. And, you're, you know, you're, it's going to be exactly where you think it's going to be on the screen. And at some point, someone realized, wait, there's a person who's actually driving this thing around. There's a human in the loop. That is the control system. That's who's closing the loop here. Right. And in fact you don't need to do all these extra hard things. One of the hard things in Powered Prosthesis has been ch- inferring what the user intends to do. And a neural interface means there's a way for us to actually directly read from electric signals from the body what the person intends to do and we then perform that action. So our group at MIT has been doing some, some things where we're actually looking at how we can change the amputation technique so that we can actually have a, a more direct uh, control path for the user, and even provide feedback back to the user. So it's not just that you move something in this open loop command where you say, okay, open, like for hands, it's like open the grip, close the grip, or in walking it, walking it actually hasn't been done, partially due do to it for a number of reasons. Um, a lot to do with timing, that just timing is really critical when you're walking. But it, it, by being able to actually close the loop and put the person in, in the loop, then there's not this, like, unreliability or question of w- how the system is going to perform. It's right, it's got to
1: perform. work as fast as our normal body does now, right?
0: Yeah, and, and actually, so this is so people often ask, like, what's the difference between upper body and lower body processes? Because we've actually been seeing more hand, more kind of bionic hands a lot, a lot more than the powered legs, right. knees and ankles, and things like that. And they're just, they're different problems. Upper body needs a lot of degrees of freedom, but timing isn't super critical, and the forces aren't super high. It's still hard to package everything small, but timing, you know, if it's too long, then it is frustrating and annoying, and you hear complaints from people that my electric hands myelectric means reading the muscle signals. Okay. Electromyography is a, a means of measuring the electric pulses that are actually happening in your muscles. Okay.
1: Thanks for the explanation. Good education here. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So you can actually pick up these these signals, and the signals-to-noise ratio at the muscle is actually within a range that we can pick up with some electrodes and some some amplifiers. Uh, reading it directly at the nerve is actually quite difficult. The, the signal noise ratio is really low, um, but you can pick up these signals, and you you need some amount of time to figure out where the signal is going, what the muscle activation is reaching, so that we can actually figure out if it's just a random noise pulse or if it's actually an intended signal. And so, as long if it's less than you know a few hundred milliseconds or maybe a couple hundred milliseconds for your upper body. It's not such a big deal. Right, you're not,
1: you're not catching a ball, you're just trying to grab something and pick it up. Right? Yeah, yeah. It,
0: and, if you, and you know, it sucks if you drop a bottle of water or something like that, but it's not you know, end game. Whereas lower extremity, the forces are much higher, thousands of newtons, 100 to 200 newton meters of torque at the ankle, for instance, and hundreds of watts, three to 500 watts, depending on how fast you're walking. These are very l- large loads. And they're happening every second. Like right. the average cadence for an average-sized person is about one second at average walking speed. And that means you need to be making decisions, not just identifying the decision to be made, but also acting on it and, and moving some, some piece of hardware within milliseconds. And it can't fail ever, because if it fails, you fall you over. You fall over, right. It yeah. has much, much higher consequence behavior. and so. These are, so there's some slightly different requirements for each of these th- right. systems. And so it's been hard to do my electric control at the leg because there's, uh, you, know, you usually often need a sample over 100 milliseconds or something, 50 to 100 milliseconds to figure out what the muscle is trying to do before you can then react to it. And then you have some amount of timing that enables you to actually do some reaction. And so we've used some control systems that kind of make these decisions based on uh, sensing the ground, joint angles, joint torques, shank angle, And we can use that to actually make decisions on this cyclical motion of walking. But now what we did with this new amputation technique is we're saying, okay, let's make the amputation actually prepared to interface with the robot. So we move the muscles above the amputation zone where you're cutting the bone and sew them together. And so they can... So
1: let me me just take a step back. So you're working with doctors now and and actually giving them information about how to amputate and what to keep. Because, you know, I guess they're removing the muscle, the bone, et cetera, but there's some neurological pieces. Yeah, so I don't do this myself. There's right, other right. people Is in
0: our research group at MIT. So we work with surgeons. One surgeon in particular that we've worked with, Matt Carty, not to be confused with myself, Matt Carney. <laughs> uh, he's a surgeon at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and we've been working together over the last few years to develop this amputation technique. So it's actually quite literally we are changing the way that we move the tissue around inside your body during this, this procedure. And what it is, is the idea is to keep, in a traditional amputation, you just kind of cut everything and fold it up so it fits well into a socket. What we're saying is, well, no, let, let's, let's actually preserve some of those muscle bodies that have these nice signal-to-noise ratios, like I was talking about earlier. These muscles are, when the nerve goes into them, we can see the muscle activate and recruit uh, more and more muscle fibers, and let's keep that intact. So let's keep the nerve going into that muscle body and let's just move the muscle body up above the amputation zone and then sew it together. Uh, now of course I'm t- I'm talking about uh, these are s- right now we're doing in situations where there those muscle bodies are still there it depends the the type of trauma and the, the, the exactly, type of procedure. Right. Every um,
1: situation is I'm sure is going to be different, yeah.
0: Yeah, every situation is different. We are looking at how we can actually do regenerative systems so we so we, oh, wow. it can be done later at some other point in time. But right now like the first stuff we've shown is at an elective amputation, uh, which needed to happen for some reason. Uh, we can move those tissues up above, and actually sew them back together again, uh, on one end and keep the other end fixed, and so they can pull against each other. And that pulling means one muscle contracts. You, like you decide you contract, just as if you were walking, you'll you know flex your calf or something, and it will stretch the uh, antagonistic muscle. And all of our muscles are tension systems. They're always pulling. There's always an agonist and antagonistic muscle. Right, one pulls okay. against the other one to move a joint back and forth. So we're kind of a cable-driven robot in a way, or cable, <laughs> cable-driven machine. That's interesting, yeah, yeah. Cable-driven biological machine. Right. And so be, uh, when one flexes and the other one gets pulled, the, you have the sensation of flexing and of your joint moving because the other muscle has sensors in it. You could think of them as little load cells, part of the uh, muscle tendon unit called the Golgi apparatus that actually can sense tension in the tendon So it's that
1: tension that you pick up on.
0: It's that tension that you pick up on. It's something we call proprioception. You feel as though your joint is moving. And this new technique allows you to both feel how it's moving. But what that also means is that your neural signals that are passing through your body remain biological in in form. And so that means those signals that we can pick up match the models we have of muscle tendon units and how they contract and how they affect your musculoskeletal system. So we can take those signals. Feed those into control systems and numerically simulate desired biological torques, and we then send that desired torque to the robot and generate those torques at the robot. And that and so my core responsibility is building the robot that can achieve whatever desired torques and powers and and trajectories that may be requested by this neural system.
1: Right, right, uh, and we saw saw examples of that yesterday. Well, this is outstanding, but so, so what's the ultimate goal? Is it, is it to be at a point where Somebody has to have an amputation, and they're up and running on a bionic extremity that would allow them to almost get back to normal pretty quick. That's that's
0: yeah. I mean, the name of the game is to to end physical disability. That's that's truly the goal of our lab, and uh, definitely in the work I continue to go forward with, I, I want to work towards that. But maybe why why stop there? You know, it, it may be possible that we can actually beat biology, and as as we're able to shrink things down and you know increase power densities, torque densities, strength of materials. Uh, be smarter about how we're designing these systems. The goal is really to go better than biology, to augment biology. And I, 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 I would always like to jump a little higher, so that would... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's the name of the game. And, you know, these technologies that we're developing for the prostheses, it applies to exoskeletons as well. So it's not purely the prosthesis, but the prosthesis is a very interesting application of these things. It, it's human. It's the most humanoid of humanoid robotics.
1: That's great. This is outstanding. So how did, how did you get here? You've obviously had a lot of training, mechanical engineering, as we discussed earlier, but how did you get to the point where you were driven, or, or this project called you? Yeah, that's a good question. I,
0: You know, I've always wanted to build humanoid robots. Really? Okay. The, yeah, so there's this little piece of paper my mom pulled out from when I was like seven years old. <laughs> it was one of these things in school, like what do you want to be when you grow up? And on this piece of paper it said, I want to be a magician or work with personal computers, or build humanoid robots, <laughs> and this is a little seven-year-old Matt in like, in the '80s, and and you know we at that time we it was basically like pictures of what robots might be. We weren't even building so much for humanoids at the time, and so it's been an interest of mine since I was a kid. And I kind of always had a, a hands-on mechanical aptitude for things, and so every step of the way, I've chosen you know academic interests and. Uh, industry in- interests like jobs that are going to help me build skills that work towards that goal uh-huh. and now uh, it hasn't necessarily been totally linear I have you know I worked in a medical device company for some period of time I've worked on a few renewable energy projects actually and those may not have been humanoid robots they were still very great applications of engineering but they were also helping me build skills that do apply to this and in some ways I kind of fell into this position I was working for a Having finished my, my first master's in mechanical engineering, I was working for a wind power company called Makani Power. I was in the energy systems group where I was you know working on these, the thermal systems in the, the power electronics packaging to mount onto this wing. And this was 2008, 2009. And we had two rounds of layoffs and I got laid off in the second round. And the guy I was sharing my office with said, Matt, what are you gonna do now that you just got laid off? I was like, well, I have this robot in my basement. I guess I'll just keep working on that. <laughs> and he's like, well, why don't you go meet these guys I know? They're from MIT, and they're working on, they're building robots. You'll learn a lot with them. And so I called him up, and uh, a week later, I had a part-time job working on their humanoid robot. So I kind of just, like, fell into that position. It's, it's
1: always amazing. I, yeah, I've been laid off myself, and it seems like every every time, it seems like a tough, difficult, devastating time, but it always works out. I've always heard that, and it's Uh, maybe it was was meant to be in a way, yeah. I lucked out, but, you know, also it was you
0: know, I had been working at this engineering company, and I would come home at night and work on this robot in my basement. Really? So I was just, I was working very hard, and when I got to Mecca, I continued to work very hard. Before I knew it, I was working full-time, and much more than full-time to really push out the system, and by working that hard, I, I guess built up some, you know, People were willing to recommend me for things, and I was learning a lot because I was putting a lot of hours in, and yeah, I guess I think that's kind of played out. It, it, again, you know, I that company went into hibernation because, again, it was still 2009, right, so right. 2010 things were a little hairy. I got recommended for a product design position at IDEO, a product design company, and I learned a lot from there about surface modeling, consumer product development.
1: Uh, that's great because you get the product design piece plus the mechanical piece, and especially when you're working with humans. That that's important. It, yeah. and, and building tightly integrated systems. I
0: worked on a smartphone, so it was all about fitting a whole bunch of stuff into a, a very small industrial design package. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, so yeah, that's where I learned all about surface modeling. Right, right. Uh, which I've I've found to be really important. I used it a lot in the current system I just built for my PhD to be able to build some really complex geometry that doesn't necessarily look SOLIDWORKS-y. You know, like there's, (laughs) there's like the, like the industrial kind of looking stuff that I had been building before. And then this built up tools to help me do some really complex geometries. Oh, great. And, and, and not just complex geometries, but you know, I, I now I also learned master modeling there. So top-down sketch modeling, which I found to be a very powerful tool to be able to split off designs for different people to be working on things or for instance like in the current actuator I designed the motor drivetrain system separate from the rest of the structure and I was able to send out the motor to be manufactured and that whole little package to get manufactured before I even finished designing the rest of the system because I had laid it out as a, as a master model. Oh interesting, okay. And yeah. so I was able to just move very quickly on this. Um, it can be a little dangerous like, you can paint yourself in a corner sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> so. exactly. It <laughs> can be a little troublesome. But, but, um, uh, what about collaboration? I mean, you obviously worked a lot of people and, and help you with your design. Or is, this, is this are you somewhat on your own or I, obviously you're getting feedback from doctors and
0: Yeah, so this system I did most of it myself actually I did I uh, started with a blank sheet of paper of course was working with Dr. Hugh Hare, who runs our group. He had, of course had very high level design constraints that we wanted to try to achieve right. and lots of experience in this, but he set the constraints and then I went to try to figure out what is the optimal configuration of components to build this thing, did all the CAD, Uh, worked with manufacturers to build the different components. I outsourced the electronics to a buddy of mine I used to work with who has built a nice little embedded system, Power Electronics Package, and we worked together to make it fit inside the system itself. And he wrote the, so he got the boards made and wrote the device drivers, and then I went in and did all the control system programming as well. So I did a lot of the stack, and then of course I had a couple people in the lab helping getting the the first walking controller working, and of course, working with patients. So, there's been over a dozen people who have used the system so far.
1: Really? That's great. And it sounds like you may have a new user, right? You met Mike Schultz for BioDapt, who is uh, an athlete, now a para athlete. He's lost his great. leg, but he's uh, winning medals and doing some similar designs as well. Yeah, like he's you got guys some move. cool systems. Yeah. Uh, so, his system is a passive
0: system. So, it, it's basically like a mountain bike attached to your leg in a way, meaning it's a bunch of high performance aluminum components matched with shocks, right. uh, mountain bike shocks. And that allows you to have both rebound and damping rate control, which right. is, can be really helpful. That basically gives a lot more flexibility than the, the current off-the-shelf components can provide. Now, what I do is I, I take that to the next level by having... I My system is a torque control device or impedance control, which means I can tune the, the spring and damping to anything I want anywhere in the range.
1: And he could adjust that for any... Any application for a bike or something else, maybe? Or? Yeah,
0: well, like his, his system, he, he manually tunes the shocks for the application. So if he's um, mountain biking or motocross, or uh, I think snowmobile is one of his big ones. Uh, his other customers might do that, but he is there is a limitation to what can be changed, and it, it and it's not dynamic. What the the powered robots, the bionic systems allow us to do is to have full dynamic control throughout the entire range at all times. And that's really cool, because then you have a much more dynamic system. Yeah,
1: that's excellent. I, I, I'd, lo- I'd love to see. I, I know there was a challenge for you guys to show something maybe next year here. So. Yeah, no, it's
0: cool. Like, his stuff is super rugged and really made to be pounded on, and my stuff's still in the laboratory. So while I think I've run a lot of numbers that show that it has really great fatigue life, it is nowhere near waterproof, for right. instance. <laughs> Your yeah. a real problem yeah, right Exactly, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's, that's probably true, yeah. Especially dealing with batteries, et cetera, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's some
0: big, I mean, it's a lot of power sitting in there. It, um, and that's the thing, like something I often tell some of our younger students is fear the robot. When this is at research level, when you're in the laboratory, you know, the, the system has a lot of power and you probably haven't spent as much time on all the safety precautions as a final product has. And so you want to be careful of that and you want to consider that in your design. And in your control systems, making sure there's fail safes to protect these things. I always test, that when I'm testing low-level systems, I always have a big e-stop button, big red e-stop button ready to go because you just, you know, you're figuring things out still and it hasn't right, gone through all right. the paces. And particularly, like on, for me, it's basically just me building this whole thing. You know, it, clearly there's something I've missed somewhere along the way. Right, right. so it's really important to be prepared for so that. Have that the and, automatic shut off,
1: yes. And, yeah. have, and have elegant ways of shutting off whenever possible. Well, that's a good point. So, so you mentioned that's good advice. So other advice for young entrepreneurs, you know, if they're interested in biomechatronics or, or even other ideas, what would your advice be for any young uh, engineer, entrepreneur, designer? Yeah. yeah, well,
0: one is you don't have to do all of it at once. You know, I've incrementally builded, built up my skill sets. You know, I studied mechanical engineering and for a long time I was terrified of electronics. And then at some point I started to branch into electronics and okay. I needed to take it head on and then i wanted to get into control systems and then now eventually i added biomechanics on top of that but along the way i think some really important things particularly if you're into the machine design component to it is take apart everything you can get your hands on you can learn so much from other people and the way other systems have been put together you don't need to figure it out by yourself people have done a lot of things so like you know even the the cap to your water bottle look at that and try to ask why did they make those design decisions everything that has been made has some decision behind it and you want to understand why that was made and how it was made and that also applies to electronics or control systems really try to dig in there and understand how those things are doing it's not to say you will come up with new things but those new things will be built on things that other people have made and that's great that helps you understand how these things work and it also gives you empathy for the other disciplines that you're working with.
1: That's a good point. Yeah. Uh,
0: also, you know, everyone brings something to the table. So, some of the things I've always tried to do when I'm looking at jobs is try to find a, a position someplace with uh, that's interesting work that does good for the world or in society uh, and also has interesting people that are smarter than you and more experienced than you that you can learn from. And those people should be interesting because you're going to want to network with them in the future. And so look for people that, and places that are really going to help nurture you to, to move on to the next level. Uh,
1: that's a great point. That's an excellent advice. Excellent advice.
0: Yeah. So in the future, you know, I think we are really going to push the limits of biological performance, and, it, and it's really going to be the neural integration that really brings us up to the next level. I think where so that there's kind of a seamless transition between different things that you're trying to do. There's not, you don't have to, like, wiggle your toe in a weird way in order to uh, make a system <laughs> perform the next action. Uh, and I think that's going to happen with more advanced understanding of what our systems are doing, more simulation of what your intention may be, uh, combined with better sensing and better biological integration, as well as advancements in all of these, the, just the, the motors, the power electronics, making things smaller and lighter, better magnets. Uh, we are making progress on all these things. Sometimes it may feel slow, but it, actually one of the fears I have right now is that the neural systems are actually all of a sudden going to advance beyond what the robots are capable of doing. Oh, and interesting. So yeah. I feel it's really important for us to be building these robots so that we are ready for true cybernetic integration. And we're we're really on the cusp of these things. And I, I think in the, even in the next five years, there's going to be some really exciting things coming up. Really?
1: Really? It sounds like it. I, that was my next question I was going to ask. if uh, What is it going to be? So... Five yeah, years. I, yeah, I mean, five years doesn't necessarily mean
0: like you you can't tell that it's a robot, right? Um, but there will be some really cool improvements over the next five years and ten years out. It's going to be even more crazy. That's great. That's awesome. That's exciting. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's a cool field to be in. It's funny to look back to seven-year-old Matt who, you know, saw a picture <laughs> of some like you know, artist representation of what a humanoid robot might be and to realize now that I've somehow managed to get to work on the most humanoid of robots. Exactly. I actually am not entirely stoked on all humanoid robot systems or even all quadruped robotic systems. I think they're very cool applications of engineering, but I am not always convinced that we necessarily need all of these things. And that goes across the field. There's a lot of product design out there that's really great design. But I do think we should question what it is that we're building and what is the s- societal impact of those things.
1: That's true, that's true, yeah. Huma-
0: humanoid systems are great, for, like, absolutely we need them for disaster relief, particularly things like, such as F- Fukushima, where we need to send a robot in to deal with some sort of crazy disaster that's going on and the environment is built up for humans and so that's why you need a humanoid form going in there. But I don't know that they necessarily need to be bringing groceries to your doorstep. You know? <laughs> right. we, don't, we don't need to automate everything. Exactly. There, there's still room for, it's still nice to have human interpersonal interaction as well. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. We're, we're, not, we're not stark industries yet, right? Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> but building these systems, applying all that same technology to improving people's lives there's high value to that. There's high value. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, actually, uh, kind of what I'm looking at my next steps. So I just finished my PhD a few weeks ago. I'm now...
1: Congratulations, by the way.
0: Thank you. That was a very hard push. (laughs) Let me tell you, they don't just hand out PhDs for nothing. (laughs) That was hard. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, my my next step is I'm trying to figure out how I can get this kind of stuff to a lot of people. And a lot of people have tried, and it is very hard for a lot of reasons. It's hardware. Hardware is hard. It's a medical device. That's hard. There's a lot of regulation involved in that. But I'm really motivated by the people who wear these systems and the excitement I see on their faces. And uh, my next step is to look to build up a team to try to continue to
1: pursue this. That's great. That's great. i see a bright future for you. There's going to be a Yeah, i will see what I, happens next. I'm yeah. right. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll be following, you know, I'll be following along. Cool. I, I can't wait to see. For sure. Though. So, excellent. Thanks for listening today, and remember that if you're looking to quickly create and collaborate on 3D conceptual designs and organic shapes using cloud-based tools to deliver innovative products to market faster, check out our 3D experience products. To learn more, go to solidworks.com slash 3 Tools. We'll be back again soon with more great Born to Design podcast stories at solidworks.com podcast, or wherever podcasts are readily available. Until then, keep innovating. I really hope that what you heard today has inspired you. If you enjoyed it, head on over to iTunes, search for the Born to Design podcast, and please leave us a five-star review so that this podcast will be recommended to more people, helping us expand the Born to Design community. Thank you.